Welcome to the Free Money Podcast for bringing you the Brooklyn Bay Area consensus about institutional investing that you desperately crave. Yes, you do crave it. And uh, that consensus wasn't always there, Sloan. I was thinking back, the Brooklyn, California uh, mm. it used to be a beef in the era of Tupac. That's a good point. That's a good point. And so I think we should just be grateful for the consensus that has emerged between California and Brooklyn, probably thanks to us. That's a great point. We're out here building bridges, uh, tying communities together. (laughs) Glad that beef is over. I think it's actually, as far as I know, it may not be over. Maybe the beef is good. The East Coast, West Coast rap beef, like I, I, you know, I think that there are multiple generations of it. You're probably Um, right. It's yeah. probably still happening, actually. If we looked it up, there'd probably be like new, younger people carrying the beef. Well, I think like the it's still it, now it's like every rapper has beef with like Southern rappers, like Lil Wayne, who just used the auto tune, you know. Um, so like the, the evolving geography of beef, very interesting. <laughs> the evolving geography of beef sounds like a PhD thesis that <laughs> my colleagues at Oxford would have written. Oh my god! Yeah, that, I mean that's. What amazing thing. That's what academia is for. Seriously, like what the heck? Now we all want to go back and be academics, study the geography of beef. Hell yeah. I'm and like, I'm a hip hop scientist. Not Wendy's. Um, how you doing? We had I'm new music pretty- today. Why? Why did we have well, new music? Oh, I mean, well, I'm, I just moved in with my girlfriend. I don't have my speaker set up yet. So, you know, we were very lucky that you had a, uh, a, cl- a clip hanging out, uh, you know, and ready for us. Um, and actually, that clip is it means I am empowered. <laughs> That's true. I am usually <laughs> I am ready for many clips. Is it, are people excited about that? Yep. Uh, everyone's excited about that. I mean, so. I, uh, you're too kind. This is where you would play it in applause clip usually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, did, actually, did you hear the clapping? I was yeah, playing yeah, yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> um, so, like, what's actually great about this theme, though, um, for I mean, we're talking about impact investing, right? It's the impact episode. It's the impact episode. And, like, I think starting off as being, like, we cured East Coast, West Coast rap beef is, like, such a perfect case in point of, of what can happen in imp- impact investing, right? It's so true. <laughs> <laughs> like, the unintended consequences of the beef. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, two great people dying. Yeah, you know. two great people dying, or you know, or even just like us coming out and like thirty years later being like, we've solved, we've solved this problem forever. Don't worry about it. We're so innovative. You know, I mean, is there any area of investing more misunderstood than impact investing to you? Uh, I don't think so. I, I yeah. think it is the most um, confusing. I think there's mm-hmm. some people that are like, oh, I fully understand what impact investing is. It's you know, you're pursuing some different objective other than investment returns. And then my, my classic response, which is a bit kind of uh, dickish is to say, I, for my part, have never seen an investment on earth that doesn't have an impact on somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Every investment is an impact investment and they create jobs. The whole point is to either save jobs, create jobs. So when we talk about impact investing, 
in general, I think people are saying, hey, we want to achieve something other than just make money. And so let's use our investment dollars rather than philanthropic dollars or charitable dollars to try to drive some positive outcome. And where I get confused, Sloan, and maybe you can help me, is how do we differentiate between the impact investment space, the $90 trillion that is out there and defined as sustainable? Mm. difference between sustainable sustainable get impact less yeah <laughs> it's impact light maybe Imp- is that what or, yeah or no it's impact you know all, the sustainable stuff is that doesn't define itself as impact i guess it's by definition zero impact right uh yeah but maybe uh, by not but maybe by ha- having less harm you we yeah. could define the impact as less harm i don't know yeah yeah I, I mean progress I, I, it's, it's weird because so I, I think like I was watching the classic, uh, you know, movie musical, the greatest showman, uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, <laughs> very the, classic total. I mean, uh, it, it actually, circa 2018. is that the version you were circa watching? 2018? Yeah. yeah. Hey, it, it's like the, it, it's full of songs that are just absolute bops. I encourage everyone to watch it. Um, but it's the story of PT Barnum. Yeah. Um, that's a fun movie. It's a fun movie, you know, and like the, but, you know, and P.T. Barnum was basically himself like the first impact investor. He called it profitable philanthropy. Yeah. Um, you know, and so he did these like creative things in his, in his town of Bridgeport to kind of like move things in a, in the direction that he saw fit, you know? Yeah. I love it. I mean, I, you know, the, the theory of it is incredible. And I, I don't want to diss people who are out there trying to develop impact investment yeah. strategies. I myself am like really passionate about this topic and I'm being a bit, you know, facetious here. But the reality is it's the Wild West. You yep. know, I, it, it needs so much more data. Yeah. But it's going to be fun because with that 90 trillion I mentioned, and that's a real number, that's the PRI signatory number, right? Mm-hmm. There's something like a million investment professionals that are going to need to begin measuring portfolios in ways they are not currently measuring. So a million people are going to need new data, new analytics, and new ways of of measuring what the hell this impact is that we're so excited about. And then ideally, once we start measuring it and really being smart about um, how we capture the data and then what we do with it, maybe we can start to build portfolios that actually drive more impact. That's yeah. the real holy grail. But that's a that's a huge problem, though. Like, I, I you know, I, I think like, uh, you know, at CFA Institute, we would start talking about this and people would start getting very, very into the weeds about it. It's like, oh, you're an impact investor, huh? Name every yeah. impact that you have, uh, mm-hmm. you know. And so there are all of these like philosophical uh, discussions about at what level to, to verify the impact, um, at what level to approach it, you know. Um, that kind of forestalled for time anyway, any progress. It did. I mean, you know, it's like the haters can shut it, shut it all down. And, and I think we can go back to like Gene Rogers and SASB and say, there's Mm -hmm. certain impacts that are going to be material for certain investment strategies. Like I know a lot of investors who are out there trying to solve climate change. Like, yes, they are investing in companies, um, but they're investing in companies because they view that as a way to scale technology and mm-hmm. scale solutions. But yeah. like the ultimate goal is 
solving the climate crisis and preventing a, you know, a catastrophe. So that's a pretty clear impact and you can be really um, laser focused on achieving it. I think it's hard when you actually are trying to manage too many impacts at once and you're like, well, we want to avoid, you know, slave labor and we want to solve climate change at the same time. Well, like that gets to be tricky to build into an investment strategy. It's so disgustingly tricky. (laughs) Um, to, to do to do these things all at once. I mean, it was just shocking to explain to someone who's outside the financial system. But like, once you actually think about it, I guess the problem is we don't have established ways of verifying impact. You know, so no. I guess you know, let's get someone on the phone who's established. Let's do it. Way of thinking I love about it. it. Um, Who are we calling? calling? Help me pronounce this name. We're calling uh, Christina Leon Hufvid. I um, I hope I pronounced that right. Um, who is a founder at Tideline in Impact? Tideline. Beautiful. Christina. Drum roll. Yes. Hi there. Hey, Hello. Christina. It's Ashley Sloan. How nice are you? Thank you guys. No, nice to meet you. Thanks for coming on the on the podcast here and chatting about impact investing. We're super yeah, excited. I'm very to happy to. I'm um, so surprised not to be on Zoom for a change. This is very traditional. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this is by design. We really try to keep it comfortable. No, we just don't understand how to work the tech. In fact, (laughs) we've been needing to do Zoom. We don't know how to do It's so true. Yeah, our our editor is always like, hey, can you just please make this one small change? It will improve audio quality so much. And we're like, yeah, we'll definitely do that this year. Yeah, that's going to happen. Like, (laughs) uh, but anyway, look, it's awesome to have you here. We're, we're just started the show talking about the wild west of impact investing and how everybody wants to do it. Everybody wants to drive positive change as they make money. But it's a question in our minds, and we, this is where we decided to call you, on you know, how do we measure it? What are we doing? How do we drive impact? And so the first question for you is, why are we trying to verify impact? And, and what are the elements of impact that are in, in actuality verifiable? Yeah, uh, great question. Well, you know, why we think now is the time to start actually verifying impact is, is really because the market has, you know, thankfully it's grown and matured and, and scaled and infiltrated mainstream markets beyond what um, my wildest imaginations when I got into this part of the market about, I don't know, 15 years ago. Um, but with that mainstreaming has come, you know, obviously all, all of the concerns around the lack of any standard around um, the the use of the label impact um, and, you know, fears around impact washing, rainbow washing, SDP washing, whatever you want to call it, um, abound. So verification together with a, you know, key set of standards that, that you know, investors can coalesce around uh, when it comes to impact practices and impact performance to us represents the best antidote to those concerns around impact washing and, la- and, and lack of labeling standards. Um, on the question of what can be verified, I think we, we tend to think of it as sort of two, two big buckets. There's sort of what is an investor or an asset manager doing the things they're, they're saying they're going to do in order to achieve targeted impact, 
that's on the practices side of the equation. And are they actually achieving the intended impact that they say they're, they're, they're targeting? And that's on the performance side of the equation. So we're, you know, uh, Blue Mark, our new company at Tideline is, is providing services for both impact management practice verification and impact reporting and performance verification. So th- this is really interesting philosophically because like, as you know, from a portfolio management perspective, like so much of the discourse about which assets are good and which assets are bad is about how they interrelate, um, you know, and the relative contribution of these various portfolio assets is like directly comparable at, you know, when you're talking about a traditional investment objective, right? Like maximize portfolio return. Um, mm-hmm. How should we expect like, you know, to com- the, you know, the quality of comparison uh, to function in the impact investing world? Yeah, it's great. Um, well, that we're we're really looking to bring the same kind of discipline, if you like, um, to impact management as exists in you know the financial management sphere. And actually, when you think about um, the role of asset classes in um, portfolio management and diversification, Tideline actually coined a concept some time back called impact classes. Um, what we felt was really critically needed by the market was a framework for actually classifying the impact of various investments in the same way that you you classify your your various assets along asset classes. Um, and verification helps to do that. You know, if a, an investor says I'm I'm contributing to this particular sustainable development goal and I'm doing it through a sort of an exclusionary strategy, well, that puts them in a specific kind of impact classification. But, but, but you need that verified. You need, you need someone to go in and say, well, they're, they're actually doing what they say they're, they're doing to avoid or exclude certain negative effects. And, and this is how that's related to the targets laid out under this particular sustainable development goal. So it's, it's, um, Actually, I love the analogy with kind of traditional um, portfolio asset allocation frameworks. It's, I think, very analogous. Yeah, I mean, it's that is such a, an active mental model for so much of the, you know, the, that defines so much of the way that assets get sort of uh, deployed in, this, in the world. Um, and it's, it's cool to see impact investing kind of taking that form. Um, I'm curious, though, like, you know, one of the big problems of the traditional world is this like issuer paid research thing where like mm-hmm. if you want, if you're a, um, a municipality, if you're a toll road or whatever, um, and you want to get your project rated, you typically have to pay a third party person to do that. And that creates all kinds of weird issues, right? Where you can shop around for the best rating, you know, where the people um, who are doing the rating can be, you know, kind of like marketing people for your project. Um, does impact or how are we doing that in impact ver- uh, verification so that we're aligning with in- end investor interests? Yeah, this is a question really close to my heart since I spent years at JP Morgan running both the ratings business and and risk management functions. So I have thought a lot about the the conflicts of interest inherent in the credit rating agency world, and I mean. The truth of the matter is in any business, in any professional services environment, you've got conflicts um, based on who is who is paying for your service. Um, so my own opinion is that the 
the, the problem, the issuer pay problem is perhaps not the biggest problem confronting the credit rating agency market. I think, um, to me, the bigger problems are the fact that um, it's an oligopoly. Um, you, you don't have sufficient competition in that market, so there's a regulatory problem. And they're, they're, you know, the, the worst offenses, I think, in the credit rating agency world were, of course, in the, you know, their rating of securitized debt instruments where they were, um, they really had a lack of independence. They were running consulting um, services out of the same business they were running rating service. So that really put them into direct conflict with their clients. Um, I mean, that's something that uh, the reason Tideline launched Bluemark as a separate and independent um, business entirely separate from the consulting business was um, very, very specifically to get away from that that potential problem. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think ultimately, you know, impact verification, it's true we're, we're getting paid directly by those who we are evaluating and rating. However, um, we're very clear on whose interests we're serving. I mean, ultimately, um, the asset owners need verification to, number one, help them better sort and select investments in the market, help them conduct due diligence. Ultimately, um, we think of the asset owners as the ultimate client, if you will. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that that jives pretty pretty nicely with our perspective that we if we can kind of guide the asset owners, um, the investors with the right data, then then the incentives kind of flow through the rest of the system in order to achieve the outcomes we're all kind of hoping for. Um, when we think about what are we after, right? Like, the, what are the what are the pursuits and goals of impact? It struck Sloan and me that some impact objectives like decarbonization or solving, um, you know, climate change will result in the building of nuclear power plants, which will then create different um, constituencies uh, that will be very much against that. Similar type of situation with affordable housing and um, gentrification. How do you kind of handle in your day-to-day work this the competing stakeholders and the different challenges that this new space creates in terms of winners and losers. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's a great question. I think, um, you know, I, I, um, one great manager of mine used to say, you know, if, if, if something ever looks too good to be true, it definitely is too good to be true. And I think most consumers of impact verification, um, you know, whether they're sophisticated investors or not, um, no better than to accept a few sort of um, impact KPIs at face value and assume that 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 a manager is changing the world by supporting a, a few additional jobs. And so I think a lot of this is about, you know, what we um, would call really quality impact measurement and reporting. And you know, one of the still big challenges facing this market, we have some really good standards now for what constitutes robust impact management practices, like the operating principles for impact management, for example. But on impact measurement reporting, we have some of the tools, but we still don't have a universal view or agreement on what constitutes 
quality and complete impact reporting. And there is a drive, there is a, a drive by some, I think, to to go towards kind of um, ever-increasingly sophisticated quantification of impact, um, even monetization of impact performance. And, um, you know, to us at Bluemark, what, you know, impact reporting is more complicated than that. And and it's really about providing a, a, a very balanced view of the impact that's being created. And um, that means talking about positive impacts and negative impacts and impact risks um, and ESG risks and unintended consequences and lessons learned. It also involves drawing in kind of the, the views of local stakeholders. And I think we have, we have some some tools and standards that are are helping, I think, drive forward and advance, you know, mechanisms for 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 bringing in um, community and stakeholder views. Sixty decibels is one that comes to mind, which spun out of Acumen Fund. So I think we're, you know, the the market is armed with a lot of really good tools. Now we need to bring it all together in a, in a in a single standard. But um, Blue Mark is is, you know, launching a quality impact assurance reporting verification service, and it really looks at it holistically in that, in that way. That's great. I think one of the things you said that kind of struck a chord with me was this notion of impact risk. So like the, this, that the lens of impact can, um, you know, help you understand the things you're investing in and maybe give you a richer or kind of more detailed understanding of, you know, the, the long horizon, um, effects and and I think that for me like that, that's the most interesting use case for impact. It's like when you're looking out over a very long time horizon, super hard to figure out cash flows and margins and all this. But but it's pretty simple to say, look, if this succeeds, there's this big impact. And so, are, 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 do you see that as like the pathway to integrating impact into decisions? Is like this is a lens for thinking about the future, or do you get, do you coach your clients in a different way to use impact, you know, as like an attribution tool looking at the past? Um, yeah, it's a a great question. I think, um, we, you know, we really are working to bring verification services that we hope will instill almost like this really healthy competitive dynamic around how to continually raise the bar and improve on impact performance. So, by bringing verification services that facilitate, you know, not only benchmarking, you know, your own impact practices and performance against a standard, but but comparing across different players, you know, what represents advanced practice or advanced performance, uh, we think like a really healthy dynamic is induced that will lead investors to continue to up their game um, and continue to kind of um, you know, kind of internalized lessons learned and build that into their into their strategies and their their systems. So that's that's sort of the long game. I think that you know it requires a look back. It requires a look forward. You know, it's it's it involves both ex ante, you know, really rigorous imp- ex ante impact evaluation and really rigorous ex post um, impact evaluation, and then building that into a learning process for investors where they can, can improve and, and, and keep, keep raising the bar for others. 
I'm, uh, that's fascinating. And, you know, as, as I hear you talking about the investor perspective, you know, which obviously we concentrate on, obviously we are sympathetic to, uh, right. But I can't help yeah. but wonder about the sort of operator perspective, right. Um, you know, where I think like you, you take the example of, you know, I, I started a, you know, a widget startup that aims to disrupt the widget space and make the world a better place. Um, you know, because of my, the, you know, the, the uh, social alignment of my business, uh, I take a bunch of impact, uh, you know, sort of oriented money. Um, what can I expect as the business uh, operator that the demand for verified impact uh, would create sort of compliance type requirements uh, on, sorry, Ashby on video just totally screwed up at drinking a, uh, a ginger ale. <laughs> sorry, I spilled a ginger ale all over myself. Please carry on. <laughs> um, Good thing we're but, not on video. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can spill as much ginger ale on yourself as you want during this thing. That's kind of the, the guest's uh, privilege, you know? <laughs> um, That's good to know, but but yeah, like I'm I'm curious, like is uh, can we expect the demand for verified impact to create like compliance type requirements for folks who take uh, capital from impact driven investors? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're very attentive and sensitive to the fact that you know verification in some respects you know imposes some costs on the system. Obviously, um, I do think the market is moving dramatically in the direction of requiring um, a level of accountability, however. And, and, and ultimately, I think this boils down to, you know, weighing the cost of getting verified against or getting, you know, various actors in the market verified against the costs and friction that are caused by, you know, a lack of transparency and a lack of comparability um, into, you know, the, the impacts that are actually being generated. So I think that this is about really increasing the efficiency in the flow of capital towards, you know, and the optimization in the flow of capital towards impact investing to those investments that are, are really living up to their claims. Um, and, and so, you know, ultimately, I think this is about making the lives of asset owners and asset allocators um, easier. Um, so yes, we're maybe redistributing some of these, the costs in the system, but I think, I think it's a healthy, it's a really healthy, um, development. And, you know, frankly, I think it's going to become a, a, you know, kind of a necessary, you know, price of entry. Um, we see the regulators in the EU moving towards, you know, requiring it. So I think, uh, around ESG disclosure, so I think it's, I think it's coming. Mm, it, well, and you know, honestly, uh, you know, cheers to that, right? Like, I mean, we can do a lot worse than to exist in a world where we're a little bit too cautious about how we deploy about, about um, you know the quality and intensity of the positive impact we're making in the world, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's exactly right. But yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. I really appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I love your podcast. I think Aww. it's awesome. And I love that you make this stuff entertaining. I'm, um, I'm sorry if I was too wonky. <laughs> no, you're amazing. You're amazing. Uh, yeah. No worries. Yeah. You, you guys are doing a great job. 
Mm, like, yeah, we're, in, and we're trying to keep it wonk positive too. Yeah, it's wonk positive. <laughs> yes. yes. yeah, safe space for wonks. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Awesome. Have a great awesome. week. Chat to you Have later. Wow, she's great. She's great. I, I love to see you know all the thinking behind how how these things kind of get standardized. I mean, one of the yeah. things she said, which I would have loved to like drill in with her, was like, "Well, we need all this to get standardized," and it's like. How do we do that? Uh, yep. But it, it's great to hear all the different perspectives and they're, that they're building a business around this, right? And, there's, and they're not alone. And so it may be the Wild West today, but it probably won't be in six years time. Yep, exactly. And like, yeah, all it takes is like for a couple of projects to go from, from concept you know, to implementation and then through to like the evaluative stage. Um, you know, within sort of a, you know, one given framework for it to become relatively standard. Right. Um, you know, so yeah, it is really cool to be like, yeah, I mean, it's almost like if you were talking to like Moody's or Fitch, you know, and and, uh, you know, they came on the free money podcast and we were like, so you want to rate bonds, huh? Tell us about that. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You know, you're amazing. Um, but you, you almost, I like killed me with the ginger ale. That was hilarious. I thought you were going to pull it off. I thought you were going to be able to save it, but I, I witnessed the laughing build. Yeah. Yeah. It uncontrollable. Yeah. Uh, for those of you not able to see me, I was trying to sip a drink and it exploded onto my face and yeah, it was, it was uh, surprising for everybody. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, with all that said, I, you know, I think, Oh, we're back to the OG Dear Ashby horn. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I think I actually, uh, oh, I have it. I have it. But I also have this. Oh, yeah. Love Hold on journey. to that feeling. Anywho. Just, you can't hear that and not think you just, not saying you just got to play Journey every once yeah. in a while. I mean, hey, like, should we sh- shout out to, I mean, I think they're a Jersey band. Anyway, uh, <laughs> this is the part of the, sh- of the show where we ask Ashby questions, but also where I traditionally shill for reviews in the podcast store. <laughs> um, please. If I think we're almost up to 10. I yeah. mean, if it's, it's being above five, we round up, right? Yep, so. yep, yep. And they're from nice people who've said nice things about us. Which is great, right? I think we have a five-star rating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So 5.0. Uh, yeah, exactly. That is a 5.0. We're not talking 4.6 and then rounding up this time. Yep. That's for other time. Exactly. Um, but I guess the first question for this week is this kind of like New York City local politics thing. Let's do it. Uh, yeah, which like, you know, somebody I, I know is like a, a politics person ping me this this sort of like piece about the our comptroller, which is a hilarious title, um scott <laughs> are we doing more comp trolling jokes <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I will try and control we've it. done a lot of those already i'm gonna stay in comp troll uh, <laughs> um but scott springer is running for mayor um and he oversees our pension our pension plans in the city and he's been taking a lot of criticism from progressives for investing in the blackstone private equity mm. funds mm. um has this been an issue in other campaigns? You know, how much has this come up? Can I be honest and, and, and say that I wish it came up more? Yeah, dead, dead uh, on TBH. 
<laughs> yeah. Oh, for real, Ashby? Yeah. Uh, yeah wait, wait. Yeah. What? You, 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 wait, you don't like private equity funds? Mainstream? <laughs> yes, I do. I want pension fund matters to be mainstream. I think we should all care. And we should all care where they're investing their money because there are bum, 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 impacts. Yeah. And the impact from investing in a Blackstone fund is that, you know, you're going to pay Blackstone a lot of money and they're going to use that money to, in this case, at least the article you sent me, screw over a bunch of renters. Yep. Um, and, you know, I think part of why I want to bring transparency to the fees and costs we're paying private equity is to basically show this, that like politicians have political risk from allocating too much capital to these egregiously expensive, often, you know, when you do a risk adjusting, underperforming investments. This was the dream. Now, in this <laughs> case, I don't fault Stringer. You know, I like, I don't fault the, he's, this was out of his comp troll. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, we haven't empowered that fund to be innovative and creative. And yet we've also asked them to make a ridiculous rate of return to keep the city from not paying, you know, pension benefits instead of funding schools. Yep. So the left-leaning folks, like, I feel you. We Yes, I want a, a, a global conversation about how much we're paying these people and what they're doing with our money. But, like, it's rigged against the comptroller in this case. He has to go and invest in these asset classes, often through managers, because he doesn't have the budget to insource. And, and so it's a much more complicated discussion than saying, what a jerk they own, Stuyvesant yeah. Town or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's my my take. It's it's like in a way, I mean, allocating to like the Blackstone. I mean, first of all, a Blackstone real estate fund is like the ultimate mainstream private equity vehicle. Totally. You know, it's like two mainstream things layered on top of each yeah. other. It's um, like it's the IBM of stock, yeah. you know, of like private equity. Like you've you've invested in a name brand. There's no risk for yeah. your career. Yeah. You know, it's probably going to do nine percent to thirteen percent. You know, it's just what it's going to do. Yeah. And it's super yeah. expensive, but, you know, I just don't feel like that's, uh, we should be giving him that much grief. But I do love that it's becoming a topic to talk about. Yeah. yeah it's it's kind of great that we're getting rid of some safe options because that really needs to happen in investing so that we can have the real discussion. Um, oh, from your words to everybody's ears. <laughs> Yeah, we'll just sign up everybody for the free money podcast by force. Uh, <laughs> um, sign up. Yeah, the podcasting will continue until morale improves. Exactly. <laughs> um, all right. Yeah. So, <laughs> the next, the next one is uh, J.P. Morgan is saying that their full year earnings could swing plus or minus fifteen billion uh, based on the effectiveness of government stimulus. Um. Should we interpret this as just raw posturing? Um, their bottom line is, of course, you know, directly aided by stimulus. This one made me want to barf. <laughs> um, Henry, my son, and I invented a new word this week. This is a little bit of a non sequitur. It, it's a burp barf. It's a called burp. a burf. A where burp. you kind of like oh. burp, but you barf <laughs> anyway. Sorry. That's really <laughs> gross. Whatever that word is, that's what this made me do. Yeah, yeah. Because it just goes to show you how much of the wealth captured by Wall Street is a function of government. 
right? Like yes. go back to the GFC and the and the financial crisis and the TARP bailout and how rich people on Wall Street got as a function of government bailouts. Yeah, and here we are again for them to say that. Like, who approved that messaging? You know, like ridiculous. Like the idea that like their profits will swing if government does a stimulus, which by the way, I sure hope we're not doing the stimulus to save JP Morgan's shareholders. Or poor like, Jamie Dimon. <laughs> I know. Like we're doing this for people. Yeah. Um, and the fact that like that's the the swing to their bottom line. Yeah, that that made me a little bit ill to read. Um, the market is not free. You can't think of the financial services industry as existing as like the icons of capitalism. They're as embedded in, you know, the bureaucracy of the nation state as anybody. Yeah. So yeah, that was, uh, I don't know if it's posturing or, or what, but yeah, I didn't like that one. Yeah. It's very like, I, I mean, you know, you, you could think of bankers as these like statesmen, like people, you know, I mean, they're, you know, uh, always going off and having careers as ambassadors when they have made enough money. Isn't that uh, true? It's kind of a revolving door. Like all these Goldman Sachs people end up, yeah. you know, at the treasury and, yep. and by the way, it's like the greatest trade of all time, because if you, if it's a Senate approved appointment, mm-hmm. I think you get to sell all your assets tax free or something. Yep. 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 yep, yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's the long game. That's really playing the long game. And you should put that in your app. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, you really plan ahead enough so that you can like plan to get yeah. Senate confirmed when you're like 55 or 60. Oh, you know? I guarantee you people are doing the math that they're like, <laughs> Look, I'm going to start donating money to campaigns because my plan is to get one of these roles so that I can sell all my, you know, anywho. Um, we're inventing all kinds of new ways of barfing over here. Um, <laughs> You're at least describing barfing. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So the last question for this week is um, Zeisberger, Claudia Zeisberger, and uh, a bunch of co-authors in Institutional Investor are arguing mm-hmm. that um, venture capital fund for fun, venture capital funds are underperforming because they are over diversified, um, and they advocate for a five-position VC fund. Wow. Um, which like, is that not just a co-investment? Hmm. So I, I a five position VC fund feels very freaking risky to me. Like the really good venture investors. Now let's take a step back. There's different approaches for venture funds. There's venture funds that are like out looking for what we call, you know, doubles, triples, and home runs, two X, three X, four X, your investment. Mm-hmm. And then there are venture funds for whom they are looking for 1000 X's and they are picking companies, you know, that have a 10% chance of succeeding. And so they go out and they do, you know, 40 of these companies because they want four of them to have a chance at hitting that thousand X and that's how they get their numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, um, like all the companies are doing well, it's the power law. And one of those companies goes and it just takes off and it keeps going. It drags the whole fund up with it. So the the way you construct these portfolios just for everybody out there is very different than you would in a private equity fund where they may only have five to eight companies in a private equity fund because all these companies are cash flowing and established and it's just a different stage of company. So if a company goes bankrupt in a private equity fund, that's a big deal. If one goes bankrupt in a venture fund, that's like a no big deal. Like nobody yep. notices. Yet, like the partner's bummed, but that partner has three more companies in that fund. 
let alone in the, in the kind of partnership generally. So, so to me, I'd have to like understand that. I saw a, a paper in Institutional Investor that I thought was pretty interesting where they're like, actually the ideal venture fund is one that is much more diversified, Oh, hmm. like 300 to 500 um, startups. Uh, did I misread that thing? <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to go back and look. <laughs> but anyway, I love what you're going for. Um, but, you know, I think that, that it's very hard to do that because, um, you know, it's like blocking and tackling when you're dealing with early stage companies. And so the yeah. only one that I've seen come close is this one out of Singapore called Hatcher where mm. they have this automated system to make these investments and they've built relationships with um, incubators and accelerators around the world. And they are trying to go build funds of like hundreds of companies with the idea that, you know, if you can kind of reduce the cost of doing that and you kind of um, just get an exposure to the early stage, then, then you get like the most risky companies and you get a bunch of them and that you'll capture some of that kind of power law. Um, so I've seen that. I've never seen anybody argue for a venture fund of five or six. That would be mm. cool. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. Well, you heard it here money, first. Yeah. yeah. The free money venture fund with, you know, just like portable alpha. And, and I mean, uh, you know, said people do do co-investments, like you say, like, yeah, like pension true. funds will get deals pitched to them by their GPs and the GPs will participate. But usually that's like series C, D, yeah. Yeah, yeah, e. yeah. That's that'd not be, a, yeah, that'd be like a, a pretty late stage guy that would have gone public uh, in a prior generation of years. Right. That's right. And may get dragged public in the era of SPACs yep. or yep. May choose to go public in the era of our, Fan club, long-term stock exchange. Exactly. The, uh, the long-term stock exchange shout out. Uh, Hopefully they are going to drag companies public earlier so that we can democratize access to that value. Yeah. They'll build them a nice home in the public markets. You know? right. Build a nice home. Public markets suck, mostly. Yeah, truly. Let's, let's change that. Yeah. All um, right. I don't know if I answered that question right, but... Um, I, think that, I think that's pretty interesting. Uh, you know, I think you answered it. Um, okay, good. Yeah, but yeah, like I think I think that about does it for this episode. Wow! Can you believe right. it? All right, let's um, leave it. Let's leave it. It's All right, well, Halloween, so we probably got to do. Oh shit! What are you going to be for Halloween? Did you hear that guy? <laughs> kind of, very oh, faintly. Yeah. Okay, too bad, too bad, too bad. <laughs> uh, the evil laugh. <laughs> well, look, Halloween. I don't know what the hell we're going to do for Halloween. To be mm. honest. I think my sister is going to come up with her kids and we're going to try to do a pod, like a pod vibe. And my parents are like, look, you can trick or treat at like the garage door at the front door, at the bathroom door. Like, it's like, we're trying to figure out. How to Please do don't kill us by coming for Halloween. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. We're, we're probably going to buy some candy and just leave it out on the stoop for the kids. Yeah, right. Like I don't know how how the world is doing it. Um, normally, yeah. the town I live in, Los Gatos, like is nuts for. It's like notorious. There's one t street here where when you buy a house on it, there's a rider that says you have to participate in Halloween. And so, what? yeah, <laughs> for real. If you buy if you buy a house on this one street, it's like you have to participate. So it'll be interesting to see what what happens in there if COVID. That honestly rules so hard. Like, yeah, yeah. Such a yep. great such a great law. Um, yeah, I guess we'll be able to report back pretty shortly. Yeah. 
And I um, figure, wait, should we plug the SoCab? Uh, well, this will be coming out during SoCab. Okay. Um, so right. the uh, yeah. So <laughs> if, if you're we're on right this, now, it's SoCab, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah well you know yeah anyway more things good more good things coming yeah <laughs> love you really more doors. goodbye <laughs> <laughs>